So tonight could very easily fit into one of our nights of answering questions. And I say that because our topic for this evening is a topic that I am asked about often. And the question usually comes like this. Why is it that I read about a lot of miracles in the Bible, and yet I just don't see a lot of miracles in my life? I don't see a lot within the church. Like, why is there such a discrepancy between the two? So tonight, I am kind of hitting a pause button before we go back into our study, the book of Ephesians. And I just want to give one entire night to this. I want us to discuss what the Bible has to say about miracles, understanding it from a biblical perspective, and also being able to understand it from a practical living in the 21st century perspective. So I'm going to read a couple of passages, and as I do, I want you to pay close attention to the word miracles, and I want you to also see what it has to say about it. So here's some verses. Acts chapter 8, verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed, as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In fact, that word, miracles or signs or wonders, is found 66 times within your Bible. And that does not include every time that the miraculous is performed and the text does not specifically say that was miraculous. There's around 120 specific miracles that you find mentioned within the Bible, and there's at least 37 of those that were performed by Jesus himself. Now, if you're wondering about what some of those might be, here's your quick refresher. Uh, he turned water to wine healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, calmed storms. He, he healed a man's withered hand. He gave sight to the blind. He put a man's ear back on after it had been cut off. That's a fun miracle. And oh, by the way, he rose from the dead. Okay, let's make sure we put that one in this list. So Jesus did the miraculous, but if it was only Jesus doing the miraculous in the Bible, you could say, well, that should happen. Jesus is God. Of course, Jesus is going to do the miraculous, but it didn't stop with Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples with power and authority over demons, the ability to heal diseases, and the challenge to proclaim the kingdom of God. And they did it. And then it tells us in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus sent out 70 to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. And when they came back, it says that they had joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. By the time we make our way into the book of Acts, miraculous things, miracles, signs and wonders, it almost seems second nature. It's like chapter after chapter through the word of God, we are face to face with God doing miraculous things. Demons are cast out and prison doors have been opened up. Healings take place. People are teleported. I don't know what the real term is. That's my Star Trek terminology. All I know is they were in one place and they showed up in another one and they did not walk from point A to point B. Whatever you want to call that, I'm going to call it they were teleported. So we find that in Scripture. We, we find days when thousands of people respond to the gospel message 
at the same time. We find the gospel transforming cities. We, we see vision becoming reality. There is so much God activity that you find within the Bible that you almost think to yourself, that's exactly what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Pause. Move forward 2,000 years. Ask the average churchgoer, what happened this morning at church? Well, I got a bulletin when I walked in, and we sang some songs, and we heard a message, and we went home. Oh, and we had donuts. We had donuts and coffee. Did God do something miraculous? You better believe it. Um, when I got to church, I didn't want to have to walk from the far side of the parking lots, and there was this place that was right up in the front. Like it was a miracle. I say that somewhat facetiously, somewhat seriously. When you look between the stories and what we find within the Word of God, and then you look at how believers operate today, there, there's definitely a huge disparity between the two. So what happened? Did the church change? Have we gotten so far away from God's design that he just doesn't do the miraculous as maybe he once did? Has the power of God in any way diminished? Is God different? Should we still pray for divine healings and for families to be transformed by the gospel and for God to change cities? Should we do that? Or does that mean we're just chasing after an experience instead of chasing after God? There's questions that we come with. So as I've already said, I've gotten a significant amount of people who have asked me the question, like, Paul, why is there such a difference between what we read in the scriptures and what we experience every day? So I just wanted there to be a night that we talk about the place of miracles. That is both within the word of God as well as within our lives currently. We're going to answer some questions. What is a miracle? What was the purpose of biblical miracles? We need to understand that before we talk further. And then also, are miracles still happening today? The answers for every piece of that is found right there in the Word of God. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles tonight to the book of Acts, chapter number 19. The book of Acts, chapter number 19. We're going to be in verses 11 through 20. And what I want you to do is just kind of hold your place in that text and we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to read a section and explain a section, read a section and explain a section. We're just going to kind of work our way through the text like that. So let's have a word of prayer and get into this incredible, interesting, amazing text. Okay, Heavenly Father, we ask right now, Lord, would you speak clearly to us through your word? Help us to know you. God, may we see from the word exactly what you say and also understand what it looks like today to live with your spirit guiding and working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at what it says in verse number 11 of Acts chapter 19. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary miracles. The phrase extraordinary miracles almost seems like overkill. The term miracles itself would 
tell you it should be extraordinary. It's kind of like saying that's a hot fire or that's a big giant. Like the, the words are already kind of there within the description itself. But what we find is Luke is telling us from the very beginning that these were not the normal types of miracles that had been recorded elsewhere. And he has two types that he would call extraordinary miracles, one found in verse 11, one found in verse number 12. So the first is direct healings through the laying on of Paul's hands. We see that mentioned there in verse number 11, direct healings. He, he's saying this is an extraordinary miracle that God is doing. And the second is indirect healings through the application of Paul's handkerchiefs and his aprons. That's mentioned over in verse number 12. So this Greek word for, for handkerchief, it means face cloth that was used for wiping off perspiration. In fact, I usually carry one of those with me as well. I kind of stick it up here and I'm dabbing my forehead, top of my head, keep the glare down for you guys out there. Like when, when you're preaching, when you're working, sometimes you got to dab off the perspiration. That's the word that is being used here. Also, this word for apron is translated as a workman's apron. It was likely what he would have used when tent making. And here's basically what's happened. The healing ministry of Paul had become so pronounced, so well-known, that his individual garments, things like sweat cloths and work aprons, were being taken away from him to people who were sick and people who were demon-possessed, and they were being healed by those things. He's saying it was extraordinary miracles that were happening. Now, that's not the first place you see something like that taking place. You see the same thing in Jesus' life as well as in Peter's ministry. Uh, the woman who had the issue of blood, she came up and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed instantly in that moment. We find that over in Luke chapter 8. Also in Acts chapter 5, people would lay their, their sick family members and friends out on the road with the hopes that just the shadow of Peter walking by would fall on top of their sick people and heal them. Like, that's a cool miracle as well. So we find some of those other events that are mentioned. It's, it's unusual. While many people were healed of diseases and demons, there's not a lot of them who were healed like this. And that's the point that Luke is trying to bring out. He describes these events as extraordinary. Now, the second interesting thing to me about who's writing and about this text is that Luke is the author of the book of Acts and Luke is a physician that gives us a little bit more insight into this he carefully delineates between those who were sick physically and those who were demon possessed and here's the reason that's important uh, sometimes people look at sickness and they say all sickness has a spiritual component to it and I can understand that. If you're looking back at the fall of humanity and you say, where did sickness and disease and death enter into the world? It came as a result of sin. So yes, I can see the connection that's being made there. But also there are some people who they think that all sickness is a spiritual attack. Uh, for that person, they see a, a spiritual issue behind everything. And then there's those people who believe that all sickness is solely a physical problem. So Luke does a great job of helping show us that there's both physical sickness and there's also demonic possession. There's a spiritual sickness that is happening here. But in both cases, these individuals are healed. So that being said, look with me now in what it says in verses 13 through 16. And as you're getting to this section, just know it seems like something out of a horror movie. 
Here's what it says, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from the place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. All right. Now, that is not your ordinary text. Here's basically what just happened. That evil spirit called their bluff. He said, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but I got no idea who you are. And by the way, this just kind of cracks me up. You understand, like, a spirit saying, I recognize Jesus. But what does that say about somebody's walk with the Lord when they say, and I know about Paul? I've run into him before. I've heard about what happens with this guy like that. I mean, that's just a cool thought for me. But basically, the man is demon-possessed, and he jumps on them and beats them like a drum. It was an ugly moment. They run away. They're naked. They run away wounded. So by a show of hands, how many of you were jumped by a demon-possessed man this last week? Let me see your hands. How about last year? How about ever? Okay. So would you all at least agree it's unusual? This is not like standard living right here. I mean, being jumped by a demon-possessed man, this is an unusual moment. But that's not the miracle that's happening. The miracle is what comes next. Read with me in verses 17 through 20. This became known to all. What became known? The fact those guys got jumped and whooped. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The miracle here is life change that happened. That's the miracle. People are getting right with God. It says they kept confessing their sins and disclosing their practices. and They started burning their magic books, which had a significant monetary value. It tells you it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That is the equivalent of 50,000 days of labor for the average person. Working six days a week, that's over 160 years of work that went up in smoke in this moment. It says the name of Jesus was being magnified. What that means is his name was being enlarged. It was being made bigger. It went further. It stood out more. And then in verse 20, it says the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So why did seven guys getting whooped by a demon-possessed man, why did it create that kind of a stir? 
Well, here's a little bit of the back information that will help. They recognized the superiority of Christ over the demonic realm. There's a very distinct pecking order that you would find between demons and gods within all of your your scriptural references. Even for that matter, if you just look in myths and legends of humanity, there is this pecking order. And basically what the pecking order is comes down to this. My God can beat up your God. That's the pecking order. The issue is who has more power, who is more dominant, who is going to win. And in fact, that same pecking order is alive and well today. In fact, all throughout Africa, as you talk to missionaries and those who are working and planting churches, that is a a culture many times that there are witch doctors all around the area. And those witch doctors have unbelievable power and control over not only different physical things, but also over the minds of people. And one of the biggest issues that comes with the gospel is people are wondering, is the gospel, is Jesus more powerful than that guy? Because they say, that guy healed my child when my child was sick. So their question becomes, is there more power? So the issue is sometimes when the gospel is being presented in those moments, you have to show that God is the most powerful. God is dominant. God is ruler. God is sovereign. He has all control over everything. There's a pecking order that is involved in this. So if you'll remember all the way back in the Old Testament, whenever Jesus sent the 10 plagues against Egypt as he was bringing his people out, I don't know if you all knew this or not, but those 10 plagues targeted 10 specific Egyptian gods. Here's what God was doing. He was saying, I'm going to show you God by God, I have more power and control than they do. It was breaking that mindset of control. Many of you might remember the Old Testament story whenever the Ark of the Covenant of God was taken by the Philistines and they put it in the Philistine temple of Dagon. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, it represented the very presence of God. So they go and they drop the covenant in the house of Dagon, and they come back the next day, and the idol Dagon had fallen on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant of God. They thought it was a fluke. They set him back up. They come back in the next day, and that thing's back on its face. The face has broken off. The palms of the hands are gone. It's almost like God's saying, his name might be on the front door, but I'm still ruler over everything. He's always going to bow before me. That's power. That's what's happening. There's a pecking order that is happening here. You have to see that what's being established is they're showing that He is the most dominant, that Jesus is Lord, that he has all power and all authority. So the power of a God or a person was always seen in who was submitted to them. When Jesus cast out demons, it showed his power over the demonic realm. When Peter and Paul healed people of demons and of sickness, and they did it in the name of Jesus, it was a testament to Jesus' dominance over the spiritual realm. So fear has now hit this group of people when they saw what happened. Here's, Here's what they saw. They saw people trying to wield the name of Jesus over demons without having the blessing of God in their life. And they're like, that's bad. So when the Jewish exorcist saw that there was a potency in the name of Jesus, they tried to bring in the name in order to add it to everything else that they were doing. So basically, they were referred to as syncretists. 
they would go through and they would try to take different practices or amulets or statements or sayings from other religions or other groups because they felt like if they could bring all of those in and harness it, they themselves would be more powerful. They tried to do that with the name of Jesus and they found out that wasn't going to happen. So the Jewish exorcists basically came to this and they said, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. The demon was not fooled. He, he knew those guys did not possess the power of God. And speaking to them through his human victim, the evil spirit said, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? He challenged their authority. Pause. I wasn't going to share this story, but sometimes thoughts come to mind. One of the guys I had an opportunity to meet with and spend time with whenever God first called me to vocational ministry, October the 29th, 1995, he was a missionary down throughout the Caribbean. And he said that he walked into this hut. It was a hut with a man who was said to be demon-possessed. And he walked in because there was a number of priests who were coming in that were going to try to do an exorcism and get the demons out of this man. And he went in with this group into this hut, and he said, when we walked in, the man was levitating about a foot and a half off the ground. His eyes glowed. And he said, the priest came in, and they just started saying this and that, and all of a sudden, the man's eyes got big, and he says, you don't have the authority to tell me to leave. Listen, here it is. There is spiritual stuff that happens. But if you try to mess with things, if you try to challenge the demonic realm, and you are not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the sovereign God, asking that Christ, Christ alone, to be the one to do the work, you could find yourself in a serious, difficult situation. Those things are still happening to this very day. So here's what takes place after this. The demon challenged their authority. And when that happened, and he jumps on top of those guys and whoops them, you find that the people started confessing sin. They started burning their books. They're essentially saying, we're out. We're done. We're we're not involved in this anymore. Which, by the way, isn't that exactly what should happen when people see the power of God? They should start confessing their sin and doing away with the very things that are holding them back from God's presence. So here's what it says in verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is the miracle. So we've read the story. We've talked about some of the context. But let's finish by talking about the place of miracles within scripture and also the place of miracles today. So let's get started with a question. What is a miracle? Here's your definition. A miracle refers to those acts that only God can perform, usually superseding natural laws. A miracle refers to those acts that only God can perform. It usually supersedes natural laws. So In Baker's definition of the Bible, it defines a miracle as an event in the external world brought about by the immediate agency or simple volition of God. It it, it goes on to add this thought. It shows the power behind it 
is something other than natural law. So a common word that is used with miracles found in Scripture is the word sign. So if you want a very basic definition, a miracle is an act of God. It's a sign that points back to himself. That's the purpose of this miracle. It's to point all eyes back to him. So next question, what was the purpose of biblical miracles? Well, that was a part of the answer right there. Part of it was pointing all eyes back to God himself. But let me give you three other places and three other references to help fill this out. So God used miracles to point to himself in Christ. You find that over in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man, here it is, attested to you by God. How did it happen? With miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus was attested to by God. He was validated by God. How did it happen? It was through signs and wonders and miracles. Here's another way God used miracles. God used miracles to pinpoint his messengers. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says the signs of a true apostle. By the way, if there's a true apostle, that means there's also some false apostles. The sign of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders in miracles. So an apostle, if you might not know, an apostle simply means a sent one. And so through the New Testament, it describes the apostles as those who have been sent out by God. And the verse tells us that a true apostle, somebody that is truly being sent of God, was somebody that was attested to, there were signs and miracles and wonders that came along. And that's so important because here's the thing. When people like the apostle Paul or Peter or James or one of the other apostles, when they would show up in a city and they would begin to teach and share, the question became, how did the people know that they were from God? And the way that was validated, the way it was confirmed is God gave signs and wonders and miracles to validate the fact that these were messengers, these were apostles that were sent out by him. There's another way we find that God used miracles. He used miracles to validate his word. So in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it refers to the ministry of the disciples when it says, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word, confirmed the word by the signs that followed. In other words, how did they know that that word, that truth, that teaching was from God? It was confirmed by signs and wonders. Okay, bring all of that together. A miracle is an act of God that points back to himself. God has used miracles in order to point to his son, to point to his messengers, and to point to his word. So now I have several questions for you. Does God still need to validate Jesus as his son? No. Through first century miracles, through the resurrection of Christ, through eyewitness accounts, through transformed lives, through scripture that we have, he has clearly said Jesus is his son. Next question. Does God need to pinpoint his messengers 
through signs and wonders? No. How do we know if somebody is teaching and sharing the word of God? We compare what they say with what God has already revealed. Okay, so now there is a connection. That, that part is not necessary. It's not needed in the same way. So does God still need to use miracles to validate his word? In other words, is there a time in which people are still saying, should this book now go in the Bible? Is that a divinely inspired word? Should that be included within scripture? No, that part's done. Once the canon of Scripture was closed, and once we know this is the Word of God, these are the 66 books, this is what He has put in, now His Word has been closed. It's no longer an issue of do we need to see signs and wonders to add a 67th book or a 75th book. At this point, the canon of Scripture has been closed. So here's the reason I bring all of that up. If you were to think about this like a court case, if a prosecuting attorney were to bring... 10 different eyewitnesses to the stand and all 10 eyewitnesses say it was that guy who robbed the store they're all saying the same thing would that prosecuting attorney need to bring 25 more eyewitnesses to say the exact same thing that's already been validated no not a bit okay so the reason i bring that up is because much of the reason biblical miracles are represented and seen the way they are in Scripture, their purpose behind it, God was using it specifically to establish His Son, His Word, and His messengers. Okay, so now here's the third one. If you're thinking, Paul, are you trying to tell me miracles don't happen? Let's find out. Are miracles still happening? Yes. 100% miracles are still happening. Now, some people might hold to the idea that the age of miracles is over. It ceased whenever the Bible was completed. And others are going to take the far other extreme, and they're going to say that miracles are available to anyone at any point. In fact, the only way you really know if it's of God is if it's miraculous. Okay, either one of those two extremes is trying to put God in a box and to define his sovereignty by saying he always has to act like this or either he is not God. Here's the reason this is so important for us. God can do what he chooses, when he chooses, for whom he chooses, and for whatever reasons he chooses. We, we cannot forget he is God. He is sovereign. He does not have to ask us for permission. He, he can do exactly what he desires to do. But here's the other part of that. One of the greatest miracles that is happening every single day is something that the church often doesn't see as a miracle. You know what the miracle is? When somebody transitions from death to life, that's a miracle happening. Just this last week, we saw over 40 miracles take place as people came out of the domain of darkness and they stepped into the domain of light. That's miraculous. And we see it happening. One of the reasons why believers sometimes don't think God does the miraculous is, number one, we think it has to be big to be God. Nope, it just has to be God to be God. The other part of that is sometimes in our rational brain, we try to explain away God's activity and say, well, no, actually, that probably wasn't him. So let me ask you this. 
If you're praying for a $1,000 deficit in your budget this month, and all of a sudden you walk out your front door and there's $1,000 in cash sitting on your front doorstep, one, amen, let me get in on your prayer life. Let's go ahead and say that right now. But you might look at that and say, that's miraculous. But if you're praying and saying, God, I've got a $1,000 deficit, and God gives you an opportunity to work overtime in order to fill that $1,000 deficit, is that any less the hand of God? See, that's the thing. We, we try to explain those pieces away and like, well, no, I had to work for that. Well, you wouldn't have been able to work for it had he not opened that up. I mean, it's like we, we try to explain away God's activity so much. So God can do exactly what he desires to do. So go back to our basic definition. A miracle is an act of God that points back to himself. And we still see that happen all the time. Every day, there are tens of thousands of stories of people who are healed by God. Thousands of stories of people protected by God, provided for by God. While we would never want to take our personal experience and put it on the same level as Scripture, we can say our personal experience definitely points to the validity and the truthfulness of what the Word of God proclaims. When the Bible says God is all-powerful and He is sovereign and He hears our prayers and He provides for our needs and He protects us and He heals us and we look in our life and we see God doing it, that that's God's activity, and it keeps pointing back to him. Yes, miracles take place. That's one of the reasons I want us to share our stories of what God's doing. If you don't know the stories that are happening around you all the time, you miss so much of those miracles. You just don't even know about it. So we are never told to seek a miracle or to chase an experience. We're told to follow Christ and to abide in him. And if God chooses to do the miraculous, that's just icing on the cake. Anything that God ever does for us beyond salvation, consider it miraculous. He didn't have to, and yet he's good. And he, he keeps doing things to point to say, I'm here. I see, I know, I understand, I'm with you. Let me also say one of the reasons we might not see the miraculous activity of God as we could is because sometimes we're okay with the status quo and what we can do ourselves. God often responds in proportion to how we seek him. And many times he will put us in a situation that unless he comes through, we don't have a plan B. And we need those situations. It teaches us how to trust. So the point I'm making in all of this message is miracles are still there. God can do exactly what he desires to do we don't need to feel as though our faith is somehow inferior because we don't see the exact same miracles taking place in the book of Acts. All I can tell you is there's miracles taking place right now around the world that weren't recorded in the book of Acts. It's because God can do what he wants to do.
in the end, we still have the best part. We got Jesus. And when you have him, you have it all. Chase him, pursue him, walk with him, and his activity will flow out of that. All right? Let's have a word of prayer, and then tonight we're going to have an opportunity to present some new members. So our band is also going to be making their way back up as we have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that your word is clear. The miraculous is still happening. And God, we are grateful for that. So we pray this evening that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, heart to understand, feet to obey. Lord, may we live out of the overflow of relationship with you. And God, may we celebrate. Um, God, may we worship deeper. May we praise you more when we look around and see your activity in every direction. God, we're grateful. Thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.